0: Hi, this is a special Inside Energy podcast extra. I'm Stephanie Joyce. And I'm Lee Patterson. Hey, Lee, had you noticed that it's an election year? No, really? <laughs> yeah, of course I've noticed. So that means that politicians are busy promising lots of things. Including
1: promising lots of things when it comes to energy. Here's Hillary Clinton.
2: I'm the only candidate which has a policy about how to bring economic opportunity using clean, renewable energy as the key into coal country.
1: And Ted Cruz, who's just dropped out of the race.
2: I don't believe that Washington should be picking winners and losers, and I think there should be no mandates and no subsidies whatsoever.
1: And Bernie Sanders.
2: We need to put an end to fracking,
0: not only in New York and Vermont, but all over this country. So we wondered, if these politicians were actually elected and actually did, say, ban fracking or eliminate energy subsidies, what would the world look like? We wanted to know, are these good ideas or bad ideas? So we decided to ask the experts at a live event we held in Laramie, Wyoming, in April. We invited four energy economists to weigh
1: in on the presidential candidates' policy proposals, as well as proposals floated by Wyoming Governor Matt Mead. Rob Godby and Chuck Mason joined us from the University of Wyoming, Ian Lang from the Colorado School of Mines, and Tim Fitzgerald all the
0: way from Texas. The rules were simple. Agree, disagree, why or why not? Sounds simple enough. So we started with one
1: proposal that really hits home in Wyoming, where hundreds of coal miners have been laid off in recent months, and coal companies are declaring bankruptcy left and right. Hillary Clinton has proposed giving $30 billion to coal communities all over the country to help them transition away from coal. Rob Godby started us
3: off. Yay. Full disclosure, I've actually worked with them on this, so. (laughs) Um, They're the only presidential campaign that's actually come and asked about it, though, so I did talk to them about it, but I'm a yay. And Tim? Uh, Yay.
4: Pretty weak yay.
2: Chuck? Chuck? Okay, I'm going to give you an answer, but can we just get a clarification? Was that $30 billion or $3 billion? $30 billion. Uh, then it's a capital no. It was before, it was just a little no.
0: All right, and Ian, last but not least. Yay. So, three yays, one nay. Chuck Mason was the lone dissenter. Why is that? Basically, he just thinks it's too much money. Almost half a million dollars for every coal miner employed in the U.S. today.
2: I rather suspect that we could find far more creative ways to spend that
3: cash.
1: Okay, but there were three yays, So we let Rob Godby, the one who consulted with the Clinton campaign, weigh in for that side.
3: So there are a couple things here. The first is, uh, this is a policy, you know, the the decline of the coal industry. While it's currently being pushed by, you know, prices of natural gas, in the future it's going to be carbon regulation. That is a social choice. And being a national and international social choice, I don't think that that should fall on a a narrow set of shoulders. And so I do think morally that we should probably think about uh, how to help these people through transitions, which has been a big discussion in the uh, policy debate.
0: And I'm going to summarize Godby's second point because it was a little lengthy. But basically what he said is if we're going to put policies in place to deal with climate change, then we have to help the communities that those policies will hurt. Otherwise, it's really hard to build political consensus.
3: You really can't afford to have like a coalition of people that lose so much that they just won't agree. And we've already seen what that kind of brings in this country.
0: Okay, so giving $30 billion to coal communities is a policy that the majority of our energy economists can get behind. Moving on to the Republicans' ideas.
2: Energy independence is a requirement of America's to become great again. My theme is make America great again. It's an important part of it.
1: And that's definitely a line we've heard over and over again. We definitely have heard that before. <laughs> so what do our panelists think about Trump's support for energy independence? Here's Chuck Mason.
2: Irrelevant, but that would be, oh, we're on TV. I better not say this. No, um, you know, every president since Nixon has said this, but it's, it's a myth.
0: That's a nay? Uh, big time. Yeah. Our other economists agreed. Energy independence makes for a good soundbite. But not good policy. It's just an
2: international market. And worrying about having stuff only produced from within our borders is just a fallacy.
0: So no go on energy independence. Let's keep rolling with a couple of quick hits. What do you got, Lee?
1: Right. So, Stephanie, there were a few things our economists all agreed on. Number one. Bernie Sanders' proposal to tax carbon.
2: Every economist in the room is going to say yay.
0: Uh, yep. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. So just about every economist in the world agrees that a carbon tax is a good idea. Under a carbon tax, fossil fuel producers pay a price on every ton of carbon their product is going to release. And so the result is that coal and oil and gas get more expensive, people consume less, and carbon emissions decline. Sounds like a simple idea. It sounds like a really simple idea. And it is, economically speaking. But so far, it's been politically toxic. Well, maybe that's because it's called a tax. Yeah, that probably doesn't help things. Okay, so our economists love carbon taxes. What else? Let's stick with Sanders for a second. He has
1: said this on more than one
2: occasion. I do not support fracking.
5: (laughs) You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater.
0: So that's Ian Lang from the Colorado School of Mines. He and the other three economists agreed that banning fracking would be a bad idea. His basic argument was the negative impacts of fracking are local, but the benefits from more natural gas production are national. Rob Godby jumped in to elaborate.
3: Certainly there are significant costs to local areas, but we can work out the, the techniques necessary, the regulation to make that to mitigate those problems. And at the same time, you know, it's natural gas that's kept electricity pricing low, and that's probably what's going to bridge us to, if we want a, a carbon-reduced future, that gets us there without really uh, worrying about the reliability of our grid. So I'm definitely a A.
0: Sanders vowed to ban fracking got a resounding no. A big fat no. From all of our energy economists. So Lee, was there anything else that they agreed on?
1: Yeah, so I asked our panelists about Wyoming Governor Matt Mead's proposal to double down on coal. Obviously, deciding what that means requires some interpretation. But they all agreed that from a variety of angles, it's
0: probably a bad idea. Chuck Mason argued that if Wyoming is going to double down on any fossil fuel, it should double down on natural gas and the pipelines to transport it. Rob Godney took a little bit of a different approach, and he addressed coal markets both foreign and domestic.
3: It's, it's, it's hard not to ignore the trends in coal. Um, you know, that's just a, a bet that looks really bad. I think what we really need to do is look for alternatives. Coal isn't going anywhere soon. It's still going to be a huge industry in the state for decades to come, but I think we really want to look at what, the next, what our future is.
1: Okay, so whatever doubling down means for you.
0: That's a no. So to recap, we are yes on a carbon tax, sort of yes on giving $30 billion to coal communities, and big no's on banning fracking and energy independence. What else have
1: we got, Lee? Well, let's stick with the coal theme here for a minute. We asked our panelists about a bunch of coal-related policies because, as you know, Wyoming is the country's top coal-producing state. So first up. Republican candidates have called for a repeal of the Clean Power Plan, Obama's signature climate change rule that would curb carbon
0: emissions from power plants, particularly coal-fired power plants. Which, of course, means burning less coal. So it will come as a surprise to almost no one that Wyoming really doesn't like this rule. It's one of the 27 states suing to have it overturned. And state political leaders were very happy when the Supreme Court stayed the rule earlier this year until all the legal challenges to it can be heard. So what did our economists think about repealing the Clean Power Plan? Here's Rob Godby.
3: I would be in favor of scrapping this for something much simpler like a carbon tax. I think that this rule is is far too specific, far too legal, and the only reason we have it is because Congress can't pass a law these days. And so you had to do this by executive action with existing legislation that was never meant to control a problem like this.
0: Man, economists really love to talk about taxing carbon. <laughs> they sure do. So back to the
1: policy proposal for this round. Remember, it's repealing the Clean Power Plan. We had three yes and one vote that was somewhere in between yay and nay. Like Rob Godby, the other panelists said that the rule is not the right way to address carbon emissions— They unanimously agreed that a carbon tax, there's that carbon tax again, would be better. But they all said, we're already on the way to meeting the Clean Power Plan's emissions targets. As Ian Lang put it,
5: This is much ado about nothing. If you look at where the power sector is going, we'll meet the Clean Power Plan without doing any policies pretty soon. So this is ridiculous to try to fight this. It's just lawyers making some money.
0: So... I don't know if we can say our energy economists think it's entirely necessary to repeal the Clean Power Plan, but I don't think they'd be too upset if it were to happen. No, I don't think so. So one last coal policy. Wyoming
1: Governor Matt Mead has invested considerable state dollars in research and development for clean coal and carbon utilization technologies,
0: Basically a way to keep using coal and to deal with the CO2 emissions. For example, the new integrated test center in Gillette, which the state is spending $15 million to build. Now in theory, researchers will use the test center to figure out new ways to use carbon dioxide coming out of the smokestacks of coal-fired power plants. So we asked our economists, is spending state funds on coal technology good policy? And I have to say, I was guessing that there was going to be unanimous support for this because economists tend to agree that research is a good use of money. Uh, But Stephanie was wrong about that. (laughs) I was definitely wrong. Uh, It was an even split. Ian Lang weighed in for the yays.
5: Well, A, I guess I'm not a resident of the state of Wyoming, so if you guys want to use your money for that, it doesn't bother me. Secondly, you clearly have lots of potential gain from increased use of carbon capture and storage or some other sort of technique that will capture CO2 and reuse it because then people will use products that bring out CO2. Um, There's a pretty bad track record of those so far, and they're not getting any better. So um, yeah, you know, it's a maybe a one in 10 shot, but if it works out, great.
0: And Tim Fitzgerald from Texas Tech weighed in for the nays on spending money on carbon technology.
4: I, I am deeply ambivalent about how the people of Wyoming choose to spend their own funds. Uh, I tend to think that public expenditures for primary research into big and important problems, uh, like ability to capture carbon uh, is is a good investment. Uh, but I kind of think this one is is a little bit bigger problem than is likely to get solved with a small state level investment. Uh, just to give you some context on this. If this were a federal proposal uh, from a presidential candidate, I'd probably support it.
0: Okay, so when it comes to whether Wyoming should be spending its money on coal research and development, not a lot of optimism that it will work, but some disagreement about whether it's worth it anyways. After we got through our list of energy policy proposals from presidential
1: hopefuls, we opened up things to audience questions. And the conversation drifted away from the yay-nay format towards the bigger economic
0: issues that an energy-dependent state like Wyoming is facing. And our economists had some pretty interesting things to say about that. So one of the questions that came up was, are there short-term ways to diversify the economy? Here's Rob Godby.
3: I mean, the answer is really no. Um, you know, economic uh, development is easy to say and hard to do. The the unfortunate thing is, in Wyoming, in particular, we just don't have alternative high-paying jobs that these people could move into, and it's part of the problem of just Wyoming as a state.
2: So, we asked the question earlier about who's been here in the 19 in, was here in the 1980s. I was, and I remember the conversation at the time. What we need is diversification. And that uh, that had real traction for maybe a couple of years. And then it just sort of, and we lo- we lost that threat. And we kind of let that go. Basically, what we need to find are things that aren't highly correlated with energy markets.
1: And then there were some interesting comparisons to how another region, the Pacific Northwest, diversified its economy
2: during times of change. I was on sabbatical in, uh, at... Oregon State, Corvallis, many years ago, right about the time the spotted owl phenomenon was taking root and lots of loggers in western Oregon were out of work, like that. And it was a pretty similar sort of a phenomenon. And The way that Oregon dealt with that was they found a way to get those individuals who had been displaced into alternative training. So they subsidized education at junior colleges and at the four-year institutions within, within the state. It's not a short-term patch. It's not going to happen within the next few months, but it's a solution. It's a way forward that offers a ray of hope where, frankly, I suspect right now there's not much sun shining. Tim
0: Fitzgerald agreed.
4: Along the point of, of the loggers in the Northwest, I mean, I, I came from the Northwest and remember that time fairly vividly. And I think the realization for a lot of people who lived and bled and died in the timber industry, they realized that the the, the guys who were employed and, and the women who were employed in that industry were actually highly skilled. And they just had to kind of get out of the mentality of being in the timber industry and then think about ways to apply their talents elsewhere.
0: He compared the situation to what's happening in Gillette. So is that the path forward for Wyoming, investing in worker retraining, convincing people to become entrepreneurs? Well,
1: yeah, so that was my question. If diversifying the economy is the answer, building and attracting new industries, who's responsible for that? Is it the federal government, the states, the private sector, regular people? Who is responsible for encouraging economic diversification? There's a lot of, a lot of sighing on stage right now.
0: <laughs> After a very long second, Rob Godby weighed in.
3: Let me say that I think that we do have to t- take a role as a government in economic diversification in the state because, uh, you know, if it were just simply markets and cost competition and low taxes, we wouldn't have any problem. I mean, we've got a pretty low tax, but the problem is all those other things. We have a small market. It's hard to, to attract businesses. We, we're basically a one-horse show. So I think that really, we do have to take a proactive stance.
1: So if we had asked the question a little differently and instead framed it as a policy proposal like we did in the beginning, the policy might have been something like, we need government intervention to diversify the economy. So far, we've got one in the yay camp. Chuck Mason went next. And he sort of disagreed with the premise of my question, but answered anyway.
2: This this isn't really an economic question. Um, as much as it is a, a political question or kind of a, a moral or ethical question, but I think I think the essence of this is you know kind of what do we expect from from our government? What do we want them to do for us? Do we want them to promote uh, the future for our society? And if you think the answer is no, we should stop funding the university and K-12 education. But if you think the answer is yes, then I think we need to start looking for things. I think we need to seriously look at things that are truly uh, a measure of diversification, diversification, truly things that are not correlated with the old ways of doing business.
0: I'm going to tally that in the yes camp, because it sounds like he doesn't think it's all on individuals. Tim Fitzgerald went last with an answer that I think lies more on the no side. And for that, he took us to Texas, where he spoke recently at an oil and gas conference.
4: And they said, well, it's just nothing like the 80s. I said, well, why is that? So, well, because we've managed to diversify our economy. Well, how did you do that? Well, we managed to attract businesses who wanted to come to Texas for a whole bundle of things, not just one thing, not just low taxes, not just clean air, not just excellent rattlesnake hunting opportunities. <laughs> Whatever else you got, right? It's a whole bundle of things that uh, attract people.
1: And that's the trick. There is no silver bullet.
4: It's probably gonna take a, a whole variety of ideas to come up with that bundle rather than one person saying, this is, what we're, this is what we need to do. We need to do X and that's gonna solve our problem. It's probably gonna be a, a more diverse set of uh, ideas and people who are going to help diversify that economy and and make it more stable.
0: And with that, we ended the panel. (laughs) Wow, that was a lot of information. It was definitely a lot of information. But the good news is, Lee, you've been keeping track, right? Uh, Yeah. So let's sum things up with a rundown of the policies. Let's start with those that had majority support. So starting with agree, Uh, agree and also
1: mostly agree, in that column, we have give money to coal communities to help them transition away from coal, institute a carbon tax, and repeal the Clean Power Plan. Disagree? Yeah, unanimous disagreement with proposals to ban fracking,
0: doubling down on coal, and pursuing energy independence. And then, of course, there are those for which there was neither clear agreement or disagreement. Right. Investing in clean
1: coal and carbon utilization technology and government assistance to
0: diversify the economy. Of course, this is just an exercise in energy hypotheticals because the election is far from over. And these proposals are just proposals for now. But don't you feel better knowing just a little bit about what some of the candidates had to say? Absolutely. I vote yay. Thanks to our panelists for participating and to Planet Money for giving us the idea. I'm Stephanie Joyce with Wyoming Public Radio. And I'm Lee Patterson with Inside Energy. Until
1: 2020.